AI with Sally, a podcast that takes a closer look at some of the most interesting technology stories on artificial intelligence and machine learning. We'll hear about the latest in hardware and software that has a big impact on the world of AI. I'm your host, Sally Ward-Foxton. Welcome back, everyone, to a new season for EE Times AI podcast in 2023. In this episode, we'll be hearing from NXP about the AI Accelerator IP they developed in-house for their IMX application processor line. They've also added a new feature to their software, which allows trained models to be watermarked so you can tell if a model has been stolen. That interview with NXP's Director of AI, Ali Ors, is later in this episode. But first, a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of speaking with Untether AI's Bob Beechler and Phil Lua, who called me up to tell me about a new version of their SDK. Untether makes a data center inference chip, and they're constantly working on their software stack. With the latest release, users got the ability to write their own kernels. Here's Bob Beechler to explain. We see every day customers coming up with new and novel neural network architectures, and all of a sudden they come up with a new layer. They say, oh, I kind of like this layer. Um, Well, guess what? If it's not in our kernel library, they were dead in the water. So now what we've done is say, okay, we can show you exactly how you can define those layers so that we can recognize them. And we're now allowing you to program, create the kernels that goes to our lower level compiler. We actually use LLVM underneath the sheets um, to compile that code. And this allows them to really be their own boss, right? They can master their own destiny. They never need to talk to us. Um, they can go ahead and you know, make obscure layers, make obscure kernels, and be able to integrate it into the compiler um, so that they can go ahead and move forward. A software stack that allows this kind of capability is pretty rare among startups because it requires a level of software maturity not many early stage companies have. Bob told me the main groups of users who need this are working on cutting edge neural networks, perhaps for autonomous driving, or those doing HPC and scientific computing who have very specific acceleration needs. Also, some folks may be in the military who don't want to share their workload with Untether for Untether to write the kernels. My article has more details on this bare metal programming capability, and I'll put a link to my exclusive interview with Untether's Bob Beechler on the podcast page at eetimes.com. In other news, the legendary CPU architect Jim Keller has taken over as CEO at data center AI chip company Tense Torrent, two years after joining the company as CTO. Keller is actually swapping jobs with Libiza Bajik, who is one of the founders who has been the CEO up to now. According to my source at Tense Torrent, this move has been planned pretty much since Keller joined the business. I'm told Bajik and Keller go way back, with Keller being Tense Torrent's first investor. The change primarily stems from Bajik's desire to move into a more technical position, and the timing apparently just felt right. To read the full news story, head over to eetimes.com. Another exciting AI chip launch this month. Perceive has released a second edge chip, but this time with hardware support for transformers. Perceive hit the headlines with its first chip almost three years ago, particularly for its performance per watt figures. But for the new chip, the company has roughly quadrupled the performance in the same silicon area. Their demo at CES showed Roberta, a 110 million parameter transformer running sentence completion on the Ergo 2 chip, which consumes around 100 milliwatts. Part of Perceived's secret source is its proprietary approach to model compression. The company's CEO, Steve Teig, told me 50 to 100x compression of models is routinely possible. 
Perceive's original Ergo chip will still be available for applications that demand the tightest power budgets, while Ergo 2 will go into laptops, tablets, drones, and enterprise applications that need to process high-resolution video. You can read all about Ergo 2 in my full interview with Steve Tighe over at eetimes.com. At CES, Amberella demonstrated an SoC from its CV3 family running software from its recently acquired AI startup, Oculi. Oculi's AI is designed to do more with less. It means you can use the same radar sensors in the vehicle, but use fewer of the antennas to achieve higher resolution. The result is that radar signals get small enough to be transported around the car, meaning they can be processed in a central domain processor like the CV3. One of the upshots is LiDAR-like structural information from basic radar sensors. The other is the ability to apply more resources to radar versus camera signals, perhaps when you're driving in fog when cameras don't work so well, or maybe to focus processing resources on the front radar sensors versus the back when driving down a highway at speed. I spoke with former Oculi CEO Stephen Hong, now VP of Radar Technology at Amberella, and he told me that processing multiple types of raw sensor signals together in a central domain controller like this will eventually help us retain more information for sensor fusion and hopefully make autonomous driving AIs more robust. Here's Stephen Hong. And in many ways, this is kind of how fusion is done today. You, you typically have a radar processor that lives at the edge. You've got a camera processor that lives somewhere else. They process the data separately. And then they combine it. And so when you combine it, you're, you're losing out on all the information that's already been processed. And in many ways, um, this is why, you know, the AI networks today are, um, you know, very brittle. You know, they're very, um, uh, in many ways, over-optimized for certain scenarios, but under-optimized for others. Um, and so this is a great way in which, you know, the, the data being combined can, can really be helpful. NXP is one of the biggest makers of microcontrollers and application processors on the market, and they've been an early mover to add AI capabilities across different parts of their portfolio. The company announced the next step in its application processor roadmap at CES with the launch of the IMX95. This is a powerful application processor with up to six ARM Cortex-A55 CPU cores, but it also features NXP's homegrown NPU for AI acceleration. Why switch to in-house IP for AI acceleration? And what are the company's plans for future application processors with dedicated AI accelerators on chip? I spoke to NXP's Director of Global AI and ML Strategy, Ali Ors, to find out. Ali, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ali. Uh, so I was very excited to see the launch of the IMX95 brand new application processor at CES. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit, little bit about the NPU that's on that part today. Um, I understand it's the new in-house developed Neutron NPU. Um, I know this isn't the first uh, NXP. This isn't the first IMX part with an NPU, nor is it the first part to have NXP's in-house developed NPU. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about you know, start us off by talking about the existing parts with a dedicated NPU there in an, an NXP's product line, whether that's the third-party NPU or the in-house NPU. And that's that's correct. I mean, we've had um, a few devices now, uh, both in our uh, applications processor portfolio with the iDatum X8 M Plus uh, with its own NPU, uh, third-party IP from very silicon. We have the, the iDatum X93 that's also in production now. Or at least we we have samples and um, uh, that we have announced um, leveraging uh, an ARM Ethos U65 uh, core as an internal NPU. And for the internal EIQ Neutron NPU, which is an architecture 
built in-house at NXP. Uh, we had announced and uh, we have parts around the MCX uh, microcontroller product line. Uh, the MCXN uh, under that family specifically uh, uses um, a smaller version of the EIQ Neutron NPU. I mean, the the NPU is sized according to the the device that it's sitting in and the use cases that it's uh, that device is targeted for. So we have. Um, it's called a little brother uh, within the MCXN, uh, and we have the big brother now uh, in the Dynamics 9.5 that we just announced at CES. So um, quite larger version uh, of it. Um, the MCXN variant is able to do about 16 Mac operations per cycle, um, whereas at one gigahertz, the Dynamics 9.5 uh, version has, uh, you know, is rated as a two tops engine. So 1,024 uh, Mac operations per cycle. That's pretty pretty big. Pretty big difference. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but it's a scaled up version of the same IP, correct? Um, overall architecture, I'd say. Okay. Um, it, it's a scaled up version of the overall uh, architecture, of course. Um, as you grow um, the uh, raw compute power, uh, you're also doing a lot more operations in parallel. That means that you need a lot more data coming to um, the compute engine at the same time made available, uh, both in terms of weights and uh, the data um, that you're uh, leveraging. Um, so um, there's a lot of surrounding um, modules and so you know data, data staging and um, movement engines that need to be uh, brought to bear to make a two tops version of the architecture efficient, like a, a 16 Mac per cycle version of it. Yeah. And speaking of scale, um, the size of the accelerator in the IMX95 is similar to what was in the 8M plus. Is that right? What we're seeing in between our uh, the devices that we have in our portfolio going from an Idonomics 8M Plus, which is a previous generation, uh, which uses a previous generation NPU, uh, to the current uh, generation NPUs that we're putting in the MCXN or the Idonomics 9.5 specifically, on the apps processor side, the 8M Plus and the Idonomics 9.5 are both around the same raw two tops uh, performance, uh, but there's a big boost in uh, you know. Uh, at least two to four X at times, depending on the model, between what we're able to um, run on the 8M Plus versus the Dynamics 9.5. And this is a function of really uh, how the machine learning models have evolved and how the architectures have evolved to match what's uh, what's needed in the in the market, in the compute domains from uh, the ML models perspective. So the 9.5's uh, NPU is a lot more efficient uh, than the 8M Plus's NPU for certain workloads that are more prevalent today um, than when the 8M Plus was being uh, designed. So previous IMX application processors had the ARM Ethos U65, the IMX93 that we we're just talking about. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us about uh, the decision to move away from ARM towards an in-house design? So for from a design uh, decision perspective or an architecture decision perspective, we're always looking at um, the most efficient IP available at the time uh, that we're building the device. Of course, when, when you're building A6 SOCs uh, for a given market, um, the design decisions are made uh, quite a few years ahead of when the device comes out to market and is available for uh, general distribution. Um, and at that time, we, uh, for each um, uh, design and uh, of a device or an architecture of a family, uh, we're looking at what's available, what what the markets need, of course, uh, what's available, and what's the best choice in terms of IP for a given uh, task. And that so in each of the nodes that we talked about, the the various silicon IP was the best choice that we had 
in terms of performance for the ADAM Plus when we put it in there and built out the enablement for it. For the ADAM X Time 3, uh, our analysis showed that the ARM Ethos U65 was the best choice for that um, around half top engine that we put in the 9.5, uh, sorry, 9.3. Um, at the time that we made design decisions and moved ahead with the design. Now, looking at our overall portfolio, as we have uh, machine learning becoming a fundamental compute necess necessity around a lot of the market verticals that we're operating in, be it industrial, automotive, IoT consumer type of uh, markets, um, it's a fundamental acceleration need that we're seeing. So we're, uh, we're putting uh, NPUs, dedicated machine learning accelerators, into a very uh, wide uh, group of devices from uh, traditional microcontrollers, uh, potentially in our crossover microcontrollers, as well as our apps processor families. Um, and here we felt that leveraging the same architecture, which would allow us both um, that unification around the hardware architecture itself, uh, and uh, also allow unification around the software enablement implementation uh, was a clear um, benefit to uh, our end users. It would allow both familiarity in the in the use, but also allow us the ability to uh, maintain uh, unified support as the market evolved. Even after they had deployed, we would be able to offer better support and enablement um, with a accelerator architecture that we built and um, knew very um, intimately. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, speaking of the architecture you built, um, what can you tell us about the Neutron NPU and, and how it works? So it is um, it, it is a more traditional uh, architecture, I'd say. Um, so okay. we're uh, we're focused on supporting uh, traditional uh, neural networks uh, with it, uh, like CNNs, uh, RNNs. Um, also have some support for transformer uh, type okay. uh, uh, networks uh, at certain layers. Um, and uh, we built it such that it can be scaled, like I said, with uh, adding additional uh, support features around the system uh, approach uh, to uh, stage and move the data, which is uh, where a lot of the efficiency actually comes from. Um, you, you can't just put in a, a very high uh, performance engine, but not feed it. And yep. uh, with machine learning, you need to be able to feed it the data, the weights uh, efficiently. Um, so we build uh, the overall system. We're not building the NPU separate from yep the end target devices that it's going into. Uh, our architecture with its scale and um, features that it has is sized and built such that it can fit into the overall portfolio that we have um, in terms of um, the microcontroller and apps processor portfolios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I noticed that you had support for transformers, uh, which is exciting. Uh, are you seeing demand uh, for transformers at the edge from the market? Um, so definitely a lot of um, talk about mm -hmm. uh, transformers, uh, I'd say more than um, we always need to be aware that what's happening in terms of the new cycle and the excitement uh, in an industry around new methodology uh, takes a takes some time to actually become get um, become part of the actual deployment into uh, end markets. So the the types of networks that we're seeing being leveraged right now by our customers, I'd say are, are more uh, traditional neural networks like CNNs uh, in, in the vision space, uh, et cetera, uh, and LSTMs, let's say for for audio and uh, other um, yep. uh, networks. But with transformers, um, it's showing uh, a lot of promise, um, but we're also seeing that um, it's more of a hybrid approach where 
not everything is going to be transformer-based. So there's a hybrid approach to the type of networks that are being deployed. Um, and uh, we feel that our architecture right now meets the market's needs of what yeah. is actually being deployed. And the scalability and the control over the software uh, allows us to uh, offer support as the market moves towards a transformer-dominated mo model, potentially, or uh, maintains this hybrid approach that exists today. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about uh, your roadmap for future parts with dedicated NPUs? Uh, will you keep introducing NPUs into more microcontroller and into the application process alliance? Will it, will they continue to appear in both? Um, what we're seeing in the market is that there's a need uh, for that. Mm -hmm. So we, we do. Um, so definitely, um, and since we we go where the market um, has a need, and we try to offer what the market needs. With uh, with differentiation and uh, added uh, qualities from NXP, um, we're definitely seeing uh, a demand, and uh, you know that's why having our own architecture around the EIQ Neutron NPU made sense because we saw that there uh, it wasn't going to be a, a one-off, let's say, with the MCXN or a one-off with the Atom X95. This is going to be something that's going to be proliferating uh, across uh, a wider set of devices and families of devices across our product portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the NPU itself, uh, can you imagine NXP developing more specialized versions of the NPU for different workloads, or you know, even bigger or even smaller versions? Or what's what's coming up for the NPU? Um, so bigger, uh, yes. I think uh, there will be um, use cases that require more and more. I mean, even today. Um, if there's a there's a use case that requires more than what we support natively, uh, for example, we have means of working with our partners to allow for um, an integrated uh, multi-chip solution, um, like partners like Kinara or Halo, in uh, giving more than what the native host processor, the apps processor, has in terms of ML compute. Uh, expanding that through potentially like a PCIe connection to offload parts or um, more than just parts of an ML workload. And this can be done with devices that don't have a native machine learning uh, accelerator. So uh, we have customers and users that have um, multiple versions of their end product, some needing ML, uh, some not necessarily needing ML work, uh, workload compute capacity where they're just looking for a host processor. And this also allows them to um, have uh, consolidate to maybe a single IDOTMX uh, platform or an uh, family of devices and then uh, leverage for those end products where they need an accelerator to leverage the you know the external accelerator option that we're providing um, on going back to the EIQ neutron NPU uh, question itself um, I think um, going smaller um, than what we have in the MCXN um, doesn't really make that much sense. I think that is a very efficient, very small um, and capable uh, core that we have. Um, if the end use requires less than what we've put in with the EIQ Neutron variant and the MCXN, uh, you might be better supported through the CPU itself, uh, potentially. Um, but um, higher, bigger, um, definitely the, the architecture does scale. And we have um, plans around uh, both variants around the architecture that add some specific uh, functionality, potentially looking into different data types, um, 
or uh, looking into different um, compression, decompression, sparsity type of structures that can be specialized versions or could be roadmap uh, features in the Yankee Neutron course. Sounds great. I'm hoping you'll keep us up to date at E-Times about all of these, all of these developments. Um, let's change track maybe a little bit and talk about software. Um, hardware, of course, useless without software. Um, how hard is it today to develop a software stack for ML, whether that's for a microcontroller or Cortex-M part, or whether that's for your proprietary NPU? What are the main challenges that you're facing when you're trying to develop a software stack for this? Well, the, fa the favorite engineering answer is it depends how hard <laughs> it is, how much <laughs> sure. you want to do. Yeah. Um, it, it depends how much you're taking on and you know what the quality and maintenance uh, aspects of what you're building are. And yeah. at NXP, we take that quite seriously. So uh, we, uh, we currently have an offering in the EIQ machine learning software development environment with the EIQ toolkit uh, that we built. Uh, but we took a very modular approach um, to that enablement. We, um, of course, as a, as a hardware vendor, um, we have to provide the layer that interfaces to the hardware. So that's the minimum that you have to do uh, as a hardware vendor, offer a means of mapping the software runtime to your own device. So we definitely take care of that with our BSPs and SDKs, depending on a microcontroller and apps processor. Uh, beyond that, we we you know, built the stack above that as well as a full machine learning um, enablement flow. So you can start from data, you can start uh, from your own data to uh, to bring in the data, to curate the data, train with that data, select uh, a model, um, optimize the model, train, do an iterative process, uh, profile for different end hardware targets, and then finally deploy onto that hardware target that you, that you select. Uh, but we built this, uh, as I mentioned, in a modular form so that as a user, you have the option of taking as much or as little of the NXP tooling that you want. So you might be a very experienced uh, machine learning um, developer practitioner that has their own scripts or has their own favorite set of tools around the data curation aspect, or you might be leveraging certain um, hyperscalers, uh, et cetera. So you can leverage, you can continue to leverage that and then um, take in maybe just the, the profiling on a given hardware to select um, which inference engine you want to choose or which um, hardware you want to deploy on from the portfolio of NXP devices, um, and then uh, take on the, the hardware deployment aspect to, to get your runtime, your inference onto that hardware. Um, and that's really the, the approach that we have around keeping it modular, uh, not locking anybody into our proprietary tools, but offering enough if, um, if a user prefers to use the NXP tools, um, and also offering a means for uh, embedded developers that are getting into the ML space that are maybe going from more traditional compute uh, environments, embedded development environments, uh, or even traditional computer vision into ML-based vision applications, um, an easier way with our EIQ portal GUI uh, tools that sit on top of the EIQ toolkit um, to have that uh, learning uh, ramp, uh, make that easier uh, to come on board and then eventually, uh, let's say, graduate out uh, of it to, to their own tooling. Yeah, I'm just going to pick up on what you said there about inference engines. Um, I do hear a bit about companies that exist to make inference engines, um, <laughs> uh, like third-party inference engines, companies like Plumerai, companies like OctoML. Um, if I'm the customer, how do I choose which inference engine to use, whether that's third-party or whether that's NXPs or whether that's something else like open source? Um, I mean, of course, you 
we we support a variety. We we have a proprietary inference engine uh, that we support through our partner Ozone called DPURT. Uh, we do support uh, open source engines like TensorFlow Lite and TensorFlow Lite for microcontrollers, TFLM, uh, as well as a Glow compiler for various uh, you know devices within our portfolio. Um, I think what's critical is the profiling aspect. So that is uh, a part of the EIQ toolkit of the EIQ toolflow that I previously mentioned. And it's critical to uh, pick an inference engine that gives you um, the best performance, the best accuracy, or meets your accuracy needs uh, with the performance needs that you have, uh, and as well uh, potentially gives you um, the, the smallest memory footprint, because that's also an important uh, function in selecting your runtime. Uh, and it can vary um, across uh, the different inference engines uh, and companies like Plumerai and others that, and OctoML, for example, that have their proprietary engines, they do have uh, domains where their um, their inference engine has the best result for um, some of these um, KPIs or maybe all of them. So there's definitely um, the, a need for um, those companies and what they offer. And from uh, NXP's perspective, um, if a customer comes in uh, saying, I want to use uh, an inference engine from such and such third party, um, that's something that we uh, definitely look at enabling. Uh, we're also looking at ways through um, an extension framework that we have built to allow for that to be plugged in directly to our tooling, potentially by these third parties, and to work with them through an API so that the end user has the option to leverage what's already available as baseline enabled from NXP. Yeah. Uh, or to leverage uh, a third-party, uh, possibly licensed uh, engine uh, for that use. So speaking of the API now, um, Inference Engine isn't the only uh, reason to make the API open to third parties, right? There are other kind of features that third parties can can start to work on now, right? Correct. I mean, so they can plug in themselves throughout um, the, the development flow. So um, the extension uh, framework API uh, that I'm mentioning, we're currently um, using it even internally for certain groups within NXP to offer um, added uh, functionality. Uh, we just released one called the EIQ uh, model watermarking uh, tool, uh, which allows you to uh, protect and detect copying and cloning of your of your model. Um, we have, uh, going back to the iDynamics 9.3, we have an extension around the ARM Vela tool that allows you to program the Idonomix 9.3's ethos U uh, inference, uh, sorry, the, the NPU itself and uh, targeted for inference uh, with the extension. Um, so, and we have a extension around the vision pipeline. So building out a full vision application through leveraging the NPU as well as part of the EIQ toolkit flow that you have. So these are extensions offered by NXP currently. Uh, but the API, uh, we're seeing it as an open API to bring in our partners and third-party developers to also be able to offer their value-add services, their wares, their tools, their middleware uh, to the end user. So these can be, uh, in terms of uh, data sets, can be data set curation tools, can be um, proprietary models or um, highly optimized models for a given task or given use case. Uh, it can be proprietary quantization methodology that gives you uh, better results than what's available through um, the, the more traditional quantization methods, for example, or compression methodology, or an inference engine, as we had just discussed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned the watermarking there. This is super cool new feature. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that and how it works. Um, 
yeah, the, the watermarking, the IQ model watermarking um, tool is something that we uh, just released as an add-on to, to the EIQ toolkit. It works with the EIQ portal GUI um, as well. And uh, what it allows is um, a means to modify your model such that if it were ever to be reverse engineered and copied or cloned, which is a possibility and it's been demonstrated that you can actually, um, by having access to a deployed model, in the field, uh, presented a set of uh, inputs, and then based on the output from the model, reverse engineer the, the potential weights that that model has and recreate that model. So it's a form of cloning or copying the model. And as in certain uh, markets and um, use cases, the, the data set itself, the creation of that model is a very um, effort intensive uh, and uh, um, cost intensive um, endeavor by the actual IP owner uh, themselves. Um, they definitely don't want their IP to be reverse engineered once, in, once it's out in the field uh, and then be copied and then be leveraged uh, by unlicensed or unauthorized users. Um, what we do with the tool is we allow the, the user to actually um, select a set of images, insert their own proprietary image into part of their training data set and create essentially a watermark out of this. So once your model is deployed into the field, uh, if you were to present it one of these uh, slightly modified images with the watermark, instead of recognizing it as what is uh, visually perceptible, it might classify it as a, as a different class. And this would be unique to these set of images that you have. Uh, and if you present it to a model that you did not develop and you got the same response that you do with your watermark protected model, then you can decipher that this has been copied or cloned from your orig original IP. Now, if somebody had developed a model totally independently, it would not have that same uh, reaction to the trigger images per se. Uh, and this, um, and to also allow for the use of this proof of ownership, uh, the tool uh, takes the user through the steps of creating all the necessary reports and artifacts about how they uh, inserted a watermark, when they inserted it, all the time dates, timestamps needed, as well as proof around what image and into which trigger images uh, this was inserted so that if it was to be used in a court of law, um, it can be uh, leveraged to prove, uh, prove uh, ownership because um, with copyright, the onus is on the owner to prove that their the copying has happened. And we've also been very careful to make sure that this has no impact on the performance of the model in the field or any drop in the accuracy of the uh, of the model. So we, um, it's not an overhead for the model, it's an added uh, protection feature. Thank you so much to NXP's Ali Ors for the insight into NXP's AI roadmap. That brings us to the end of the episode. Please tune in again next time to hear more news and views on AI, machine learning, and the technologies that enable them. If you're listening to this on the podcast page at eetimes.com, links to articles on topics we've discussed are shown on your left. AI with Sally is brought to you by Aspen Core Media. The host is Sally Ward-Foxton and the producer is James Ede. Thank you for listening. <laughs>